Well, the Cincinnati Bengals pulled something out that we were hoping they would they would achieve on Sunday, and that is a convincing win, a dominant win, a win that really puts them in a very nice position mentally, emotionally, and physically going through the bye. I'm Anthony Gazenza. This is the Orange and Black Insider coming at you at a special time. Joined by John Sheeran. Before I uh, get to John, I just want to point out uh, we're, we're probably going to be switching up just in the coming weeks here. We might be switching up some of the episodes and or times that we go live for a variety of reasons. So keep an eye out for that. We will definitely keep you aware. But John Sheeran, just my words on the postgame show, just what the doctor ordered for the Cincinnati Bengals in this one. I thought about um, our, our discussion about a blowout versus like a close win and how you were on one side and I was on the other. I got to admit, though, I, I think maybe a blowout win was, feels a little bit better than looking at a close one, I guess. <laughs> I, you know, I, I yeah, I'm not going to not going to shove it in your face or anything. I, I do. I do understand the sentiment of like, hey, grind one out. Right. You know, grind one out and, and squeak one out and uh, find a, a, a way to win that may be difficult or more difficult than you would have expected. So I understand that sentiment. But this to me just from a psyche standpoint just says, Hey, you know, I mean, Joe Burrow said it after the game, we run the ball like that. Nobody's going to beat us. Right. So it, it just, it comes to the point of a lot of balance, a lot of dominance and imposing of the will. We know the Carolina Panthers aren't the strongest opponent on their schedule. And we know they're pretty banged up too at the moment, but when you host a team like that and you are the perceived better team, I don't want to say, you know, winning by or going up by five to six touchdowns is what you're supposed to do necessarily in the NFL. But I mean, you are supposed to handle your business and handle your business pretty convincingly. So and, and the Bengals did that. I think the fact that th- this just happened after one of the worst games in recent memory, it just means a lot. Like we talked about the Falcons game right after that game and how their offensive efficiency was borderline unprecedented in the Zach Taylor era. Um, throw all that out because they just topped new statistical records here in the last four years, like a success rate on early downs of 65%, early rush success rate of 68%. I don't think, I don't think any team is capable of doing that on a regular basis, if not just out of nowhere against a quality run defense (laughs) going into this game. Like everyone has said at this point, that was the Panthers strength on defense. They have a really good defensive line, really talented defensive line. The Bengals couldn't run the ball last week against the Cleveland Browns against a bad run defense. So why in God's name are they going to do the opposite? And they just did. Like, they didn't care. And they came out of the gate with a purpose, and they stuck to it. And what's important to me is that it's not necessarily like sticking to the run and just letting the run get better as the game goes on. The run was good out of the gate, and that is why they stuck yep. to it. They, they established it, and they didn't go away from it, which is weird because at the same time, Joe Burrow still had, like I don't know, 20 attempts at halftime. It's just because they had the ball so much and they were balanced and they played complimentary football, if you want to call it call it that. But no matter what they did, it worked. They were going under center. They were going from shotgun. They were running zone. They were running guard tackle counters. They were running gap schemes. Whatever they did, it was working. It was like a smorgasbord to just pick your poison. And the Panthers just had no chance of stopping. It was one of the best offensive line performances we've seen from a Cincinnati Bengals team in quite some time. It was and I think it would that was kind of one of the surprising elements to this game just given this overall struggles with the Bengals in the run game and really just kind of the the struggles from from the week prior and again going into this game you wanted not only a win you needed a win for the Bengals but 
just getting it in this fashion once again is just so impressive and so such a sigh of relief as the Bengals look to get healthy. And we'll talk uh, about some other things uh, with with what to look for in the buy later in this episode here. But um, John, you mentioned when I did the post game show, I hadn't really had a chance to look really deep into you know what the what the Bengals line was doing and who who was kind of standing out and what what the run game was showing. I, you know, I looked a bit more at it as the week went on. I know you usually do the linemen of the week, and I want you to talk about some of the linemen that stood out to you this week. But in terms of the run plays, I, I like what you said. It really was a little bit of everything that was working well. I did notice, though, that a lot of the outside stuff was far more effective this week, be it mixing starting in the middle and then bouncing it outside. That's kind of what he did on that on that touchdown run in the second half. Um, or just some of the stuff, whether it was creative sweeps to the wide receivers or what have you, uh, some of the stuff to the outside was just working far more effectively this week. And, uh, you know, I, I'd love to get your take on who you who stood out to you on the line in that regard, if you agree what I'm saying about what I saw in the run game. But also, is this just a byproduct of a bad Panthers team? Or is this, hey, things are starting to click? Oh, it was a terrible outing from the Panthers. And I think their linebackers really, really crapped the bed in this one. They got sucked too far inside, which is why I think Mixon was able to... I think all of his touchdown runs came either on cutbacks or just like general outside runs. There were at least two where they just ran duo inside zone and you just cut back a little bit. You know, you either ran behind some tight ends sealing out the second level or he just there was just ample room off of that cutback lane. And I don't think that... Neither Corey Littleton or Shaq Thompson or whoever else is playing linebacker played particularly well in this game. And I think the the two that really stood out to me in run blocking, Lowe Collins had, I think, his best game as a Bengal. is 89.9 run blocking grade for gap scheme runs. He had 16 of those reps, and an 89.9 is pretty damn good, no matter what you know about PFF's grading scale. Every time they ran to the right, it just worked. And that was either Mixon getting the ball, Piran getting the ball in some of those wide zone runs from under center. You even had... I think multiple Trent Taylor jet sweeps reverses that work to perfection. That's a play that rarely works well in the Bengals' favor. Usually it's Jamar Chase. Too. They had Taylor, who I think started this game as the slot receiver. So he was in on a couple of those. No matter what they were doing, you had Stanley Morgan, wineback, Lee blocking as a fullback. That's kind of what one of his niche roles. Running to the right just worked. And that was one of the plays where they had both Jonah Williams and Cordell Volson pulling around the line of, line of scrimmage in one of those counter plays. And you had a wall between Collins, Kappa, and Karras sealing off the backside, sealing off that lane where you had Volson and Williams sealing off the other lane. It was just a gaping hole for Mixon to explode into. And I think those runs early on, I think, gave him the confidence to kind of just pick a lane and just burst through it. And that's where you saw a lot of his missed uh, tackles force in this game. I think he had five, and he had like maybe two (laughs) during the game this season. And it was all on plays where he had a lot of, of momentum and he was making guys miss in the open field with like a full head of steam. He's not, I think at this point we know that he's not the guy that if he doesn't have a lot of space at the line, he's not shifty enough to make guys miss, or maybe he doesn't have a lot of confidence in that regard. But when he gets downhill, he's able to, you know, brush off tacklers and maybe have a, a slight juke move for here and there. And he was just really comfortable the entire game. That's a really good point about, you know, as he, as he gets that momentum on a carry and gets a few yards downfield, that's where you see 
the missed tackles. That's where you see the, a little bit more of the elusiveness when he's got that small space to work with and or the blocking does has not held up or the defense just as you know makes a good play, a good read on the on the play call. Uh, that's where you see some stuff where he gets tackled pretty much right away, and 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 you know some of these plays blow up. But yeah, I agree with you. I thought I thought Collins played well, and you know the you know Karras and Cap also played pretty well. You know the one thing, unfortunately, the one uh, the one kind of down spot is, and I don't mean to keep harping on it, but that would be uh, Jonah Williams letting up the sack to Brian Burns there, and I had a a little bit of a conversation a. a DM conversation with Parker Blake, who does a lot of film study and now I guess is contributing to Cincy yeah. Jungle. I just realized so. his articles, pretty, yeah, the name Bengal Trenches, I believe. So, yeah, check him out. Yeah, pretty cool. Um, and you know, he he kind of had this nice thread on Twitter. If you don't follow him, please do. He's got a nice thread on Twitter, both kind of breaking down plays and whatnot. But you know, one of the things that we just said is look about Jonah. We're talking about the Bengals, you know, Jamar Chase getting healthy, Mike Hilton getting healthy, and, you know, DJ Reader and all these important players. This bye week is extremely important for Jonah Williams. The guy had a dislocated kneecap. The guy uh, just uh, in the Ravens game, Parker had kind of reminded me that the thing like spun around almost his entire leg, the kneecap did. Yeah. Um, And then, you know, you had the, the sprained knee ligament to go with that. I don't think, and I, I don't want to do a cop out here, and I also don't want to keep banging on Jonah Williams, but I don't think he's fully healthy. Obviously, even even though you know you could pop that kneecap back into place and all that, I think this is a critical critical stretch of time to get Jonah Williams healthy. And I think we're going to see. I'm optimistic that we're going to see some better performances from him going forward if he heals up properly this the, during this bye week. Yeah, and then the unfortunate thing for him is that even if these next two games for the Bengals are not the toughest ones on their schedule, you have the you have the Steelers and you have the Titans who are doing well, but they seem pretty beatable if you get going offensively. That's Alex Highsmith who gave him the business in week one, and Nico Autry who had plenty of success against this Bengals offense line in the divisional round for the Titans. So the strength of competition for Williams is just going to get harder and harder. And in, in this game, I think he only was charged with one sack, but I believe one was taken off the board because there was an offside. There was like five or six offsides penalties for the Panthers in this game. And it feels like most of them came off of those touchdowns. And every time they threw the flag, I'm like, oh, this, is, this has to be holding, right? There's no way they can be offsides yet again, lined up in the neutral zone. But that was exactly the case. So maybe that might have had something to do with some of his struggles, you know, them, them just getting those early starts and whatnot. But yeah, like him giving up a sack is not ideal. I don't think he played necessarily terrible, but it's been the same story with him. Like he can have for ninety five percent of the game a pretty solid performance, but it's just those handful of really bad reps that lead to disasters. Yep, yep. And just to kind of close the book and get into the next element of this game that we want to talk about, and I'd love to to get your analysis on this too. But it's not. Sometimes we, you know, we're talking about different plays and formations and what's different this week. I think a lot of it too, you mentioned the linebackers missing, you know, kind of missing reads on the run run game and whatnot. But I think a lot of it too, we've talked about just this offensive line and how they have lost reps, right? It's just simple as a, you know, block on block, losing the rep. It was the opposite this week, in my opinion, from a lot of things that I saw. They were just absolutely winning most of their reps especially in the run game. And it, it wasn't, it wasn't often a push. It was a push meaning like a draw. It yeah. was like, 
you know, they, they were winning their reps. And I don't think we could say the same in recent weeks, particularly when the Bengals tried to run the football. Whereas this week, I feel like they were just absolutely winning most of their reps. And you could see that with the clean pockets that Burrow had as well in the pass protection game. Yeah, there's the old phrase, like, if you're going to lose, lose slow, right? Just make sure you just hold your block long enough for, for the play to, to develop, whether that be the running back getting into the hole or the quarterback actually getting rid of the ball. But you saw just very clean reps, like you said. And I I just think back to multiple examples in the run game where it was just body on body on body on body on body. And there were gaps that were opening up for Mixon to just accelerate into. And the passing game was solid, too. Like, Burrow was rarely under... Neither quarterback was really under pressure in this game. One just happened to handle, you know, reading the defense a little bit better than the other. And Joe Burrow had plenty of time to find T. Higgins on a multitude of comebacks. You had back shoulder throws to Hayden Hurst and Tyler Boyd. A <laughs> ton of those. Yeah, a ton oh, of man. those. It was like the Panthers <laughs> were just... I think they just did what they felt comfortable on defense. And they were in single high man coverage for most of the early parts of the game which is not necessarily ideal, especially when you have a perceived advantage without going up against the Bengals' best receiver in Jamar Chase. But Higgins and Boyd played pretty well. There there was a conversation, I guess, earlier this week about Joe Burrow getting carried with a bunch of yards after the catch and uh, the run game in general. But I don't know. I felt like Burrow played fine. Like He didn't need to be Superman like he had to be for the first eight weeks of the season, which is kind of nice to take that pressure off of your quarterback. But he played well enough to win, even if Mixon didn't go off like he did. Efficient would be the word yeah. that I would I would use for for Joe Burrow in this one, and I guess that's what they needed based on a five touchdown performance franchise record from a running back in Bengals history from Joe Mixon there. So congrats to him, awesome day, over two hundred yards from scrimmage, and the AFC one of the AFC off yes the AFC offensive player of the week and a FedEx Ground player nominee. I don't know if he, I haven't read. If I think he won, won that, that too. Yet. If he didn't yeah, win that. So. Like, <laughs> I mean, I don't know who else, who the hell else would based on that. But yeah, it's like, God, uh, just to kind of close this one here, obviously, you know, a lot of talk about the run game, a lot of talk about the offensive line and for good reason, but let's not forget, what was it? 35 to nothing at one point in this game. Uh, I mean, that speaks also to some pretty good defense being played. And that is without Jadobia Wuzier. That is without DJ reader. That is without a myriad of players on, on defense and, or, what I'm starting to believe is maybe not a 100% Sam Hubbard or Trey Hendrickson. And I don't mean, you know, 75% or whatever. I just think that some of the snaps are maybe catching up to some of those guys, even from late last year. Um, you're kind of seeing Hendrickson getting spelled a bit more and maybe getting nicked up here and there a little bit more than he did last year. But regardless, it's still effective. Here's the thing. And I want to ask this question. I almost feel like, Yes, this was a good game by the Cincinnati Bengals defense, for sure. But when you look at the two interceptions by P.J. Walker, and I went back and looked at both of them, there wasn't a lot of pressure in his face forcing those throws. Really what it, what it was about was, yeah, pretty good coverage by the Cincinnati Bengals. A, a really good athletic play from Jermaine Pratt to make that interception and a nice Johnny on the spot play by, by Jesse Bates as well. But really kind of two poor throws from from walker or some form of miscommunication that we're not privy to between he and the wide receivers but the one to pratt was a little bit behind his wide receiver pratt makes a nice play so really i mean i think it's at least a combination of pretty good defense and the Bengals stepping up in that front in the wake of injuries but a pretty awful game from pj walker as well coming off the game he had last week 
Yeah, if you would have told me that every Panthers offensive lineman graded 66 or higher in pass blocking, like their offensive line played outstanding. And Trey Hendrickson got in there a couple of times. Walker made like an amazing, miraculous escape from the pocket. Would have been a first down if his, if his tight end didn't drop the ball. But very rarely was anyone in his face. The offensive line played great. His receivers were all out there. If you would have told me that entering this game, I would have thought that the Panthers would have made this ball game. It's a testament to how well that back seven played, not just um, the secondary, but the linebackers too in coverage, mm-hmm. exemplified by Jermaine Pratt dropping back into that cover two zone and just carrying that deep crosser route and just being there and making the play. Like he doesn't want a PBU, he wants that pick, just like he said after the playoff game against the Raiders. Eli Apple played outstanding in what I guess could be considered a revenge game. He did spend time with the Panthers. That one play where he kind of squeezed that route on the cover two and really get, earned high remarks from losing Rumo. It allowed Jesse Bates to kind of get on top of that route because it was now closer to the hash instead of the sideline. That like that's exact that's exactly what coaches want in that situation. And then Jesse Bates was the ball hawk that he was and made the interception. So Eli Apple played great. Cam Taylor Britt was penalized a couple of times. And he ended up giving up that touchdown. But I think he was more in sync with the secondary as a whole, which I think matters too. Like when you aren't being given those those reps where quarterbacks are under pressure and they have to make something that something on that nothing, when the offense should be going according to plan because the protection is there, all that pressure falls on the secondary and the back seven in coverage. And I think they handled that fantastic. Now, again, P.J. Walker still has his faults, obviously, as we saw but they were able to make things happen in the weeks leading up to this. So I think they should feel proud about how they handled that opposing passing game. And my God, man, 35 points compared to 32 total yards allowed. Like that's insane in itself. And then Jeff Hobson, bless his soul, provides these great in-game stats. The last time the Bengals were up by that much in a shutout performance at half, it was against the Boston Patriots in 1970. Ooh. 52 wow. years ago. That's in the way back machine. Yeah. yeah. Uh, what did Walker have? Nine yards? Nine yards passing, I believe. Uh, Something yeah, I think like that. He, was, he was three of ten. Um, and the Carolina Panthers had one first down in the first half, and that came on a penalty with about two and a half minutes to play. So, I mean, that tells you that the Bengals' defense was doing a lot of good things in this game. But I also think P.J. Walker was having a pretty deplorable day yeah. <laughs> under center. Just to close it, though, John, his, his replacement – and what he continues to do against the Cincinnati Bengals, does that just piss you off to no end? It's <laughs> unbelievable what Baker Mayfield is able to achieve against the Cincinnati Bengals. I know it's garbage time. I know the Bengals started to trickle out their starters and or heavy rotational players towards the end of this game. But, dude, I, I can't. I, I, help me figure it out. I, I mean, I don't get it. It's it's ridiculous. I can't. And. Obviously, again, the the offensive line being as good as it was definitely helped. He took advantage of that protection for once, and he had all the time in the world to just sit back there and hit those over-the-middle routes that he did with ease. Now, he didn't play fantastic, but one would think that if he started this game, it would have looked a little bit different, I would think. There's always that motivation, I think, that he has against them, and there's always that, oh, no, it's Baker Mayfield coming in. Like I don't know if that actually happens in the minds of Bengals players. They know what Baker's been through. They know the whole saga in Carolina, or at least they, they should know. It's been in the news. It just depends on if they're privy to that knowledge or anything like that. But, man, like, he he looks fine. And I guess that's what happens when you're up 35 to nothing. Like, even if those starters are still no pressure, in. And, yeah, and, and, yeah and, and you can identify, like, certain plays, right? But, the, like, the mentality of, yeah, like, we're up by so much that Baker Mayfield can do 
Baker Mayfield versus Bengals things, and it still won't matter. And I think that was in my mind when he entered the game. Like, like he'll, he'll probably do some things well, but there's no way he's going to bring bring them all the way back. But that first drive, it just made me think. Like, I think I tweeted out, like, "Oh my god, this effing guy, dude!" Like again, <laughs> again. Uh, you know, for Bengals fans, the next time, if there is a next time that Baker Mayfield comes out on the field to face the Bengals. Do us all a favor if you're at the game when it happens. Cheer for him. Don't boo him. Let's <laughs> cheer for him. Just make him feel welcome and make him feel. Don't get the guy angry. We don't need to see any more touchdowns. The guy, unbelievable. In like seven and a half games, he's got like 21 touchdowns and I mean seven interceptions. I mean he's he's played very well against the Bengals. Uh, that being said, the Cincinnati Bengals still dominated the the Panthers with or without Baker Mayfield playing quarterback for Carolina, 42-21. A great way to get into the bye week for the Bengals is they look to regroup, get healthy, and get uh, get out of the bye and, and hopefully get off to a hot start. Before we talk about some things, as we look at the bye week and ahead of the bye week, I want to remind folks that this is the Orange and Black Insider, part of the Cincy Jungle Podcast channel. If you like the audio side of our show, you can always get that on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, all of the major platforms. We are there along with Bengal Jim, talking football with Bengal Jim and friends, and Coach Speak and Chalk Talk with Matt Minnick. Uh, John and I do a handful of episodes per week with previews of the next week's game. We get to get a little bit of an off week with that as well. Uh, we're not taking the week off for bi-week stuff, but... Um, that portion, since there is not an opponent to preview, we'll be taking that part off. But we do listener questions live a couple times a month. We do this show, obviously. We do happening headlines, all kinds of different stuff. So hopefully you enjoy it. If you like the video side, you got to like the Cincy Jungle Facebook page to see the live streams of our show, Bengal Gyms, and when Matt goes live as well. And then, of course, for not only the live streams, but some extra stuff and uh, going back and rewatching some of the stuff. You got to subscribe to our YouTube channel. You can click that icon right down by that SB nation Cincy jungle logo down there in the bottom corner under John, click that subscribe, click the bell to be notified when we go live, when new content is available. Memberships are available for the YouTube channel. If you are so inclined and we are still taking super chats to benefit the Pollock family foundation uh, Going to be doing that for just a little bit longer. Give, send, go.com slash Pollock Family Foundation if you want to directly uh, donate and, and go there. Or if you feel like giving us a super chat, we'll be funneling those for a little bit longer to the Pollock Family Foundation and Matthew Grundy. Thank you, by the way, for that. A good question that we will maybe address a little later in terms of things we may see after the buy, asking about Drew Chrisman time in Cincinnati. And thank you for that generosity, Matt. Thank you all for tuning in live currently and listening after the fact. So we are going to kind of talk about a mid-season report card. I don't know if we're going to give like grades necessarily, but just talk about some things. And there's a lot of grumbling, John, with where the Bengals are this year. As opposed, You know, there seems to be, while everybody's happy about this game, there seems to kind of still be a dissatisfaction among the fan base, at least from things you read on social media accounts, which can be toxic as all hell, as we know. But that being said, there seems to still be a level of dissatisfaction, and I think that goes hand-in-hand hand with, obviously, the expectations that were built up into this season based on what the team did last year. But 
as we get into things. The team is five and four, five and four last year at this exact point going into the bye. What's your mile high view, so to speak, of the Bengals midway through here? Obviously, more injuries, so that's something to account for. Yeah, I think going forward, the we, we talked about it last week. The Chitabaya Wuzier injury is going to be so crucial for them to get over. I think this week was a good first step in that, just seeing how Taylor Britt was more comfortable in that starter's role, but he'll have more advanced and efficient offenses to face along with his fellow defenders getting DJ Reader back. Uh, hopefully against the Steelers is going to be huge. And then there's the Jamar Chase timeline. And then you still have other inevitable injuries that are eventually going to occur down the stretch. So that's obviously a factor compared to last year when they were relatively more healthy at more important spots, right? You didn't have like debilitating injuries that were completely affecting how they game planned and how they had to, you know, readjust the starting lineups. But Anthony, if we're going to look back at what, we expected this team to be and what we had pegged as their goals entering this year, despite the record being similar, I think the Bengals did accomplish what I wanted them to accomplish. And unfortunately it hasn't led to more wins, but we talked about their explosiveness on offense compared to their consistency. And they are not only more explosive, but they are incredibly more consistent than they were this time last year. Last year, through the first nine games, they were 15th in the league in success rate on offense. This year, they're fourth through nine games. Last year, they were 18th in EPA per play on offense. This year, they're fifth. And when you look at DVOA numbers, last year, they were 22nd in DVOA after nine weeks. This year, they're seventh. Like, they are just a more efficient team on both sides of the ball. The defense took a little bit of a tumble after the reader injury, after the woozy injury, they had some slip-ups against Cleveland. Obviously, they gave up a lot of points to the Saints. They had some struggles there. But overall, this team is more efficient on a down-per-down basis. They've had some slip-ups here and there in some of the weeks. Playing on the road for two divisional games in primetime has not helped necessarily. And those were or two of their stink-ups were. But outside of those first two weeks, they've really recovered and they really stabilized in a lot of important areas. There's they've found ways to make the running game work. And I think this past game is going to give them a lot of confidence to say, Hey, we can dip into multiple bags and we can take pressure off of our passing game when we need to, if our offensive line is blocking like this, having that multi-dimensional ability on offense is so crucial in winning important games when not everything is going correctly, but the passing game in general has found its stride. It's found a way to be stable. And Joe Burrow has said it himself, like the biggest jump that he said that he's made since his rookie year is just getting the ball out to an open receiver, not always looking for the big play, but keeping the chains moving, keeping above the chains, right? Not having unsuccessful plays on first and second and long and actually passing the ball on second and long. They're second in the league in pass rate on second on second and 10 after a failed first down run. Like that's so incredible. That's so important for just sustaining drives and sustaining consistency. So in that regard, I think they are much improved and they should be more than five and four at this point because of it. I th- I think a lot of people, I, and I don't want to speak for everybody here, but I think I think some people would really be okay, or more okay with five and four at this point in time, if it didn't include an zero and three division record. I think yeah. I think if the if you, if you're looking at man, you let that you, you know the Jets who are who you now see where their record is now, you go well maybe you let that one slip. Uh, maybe you don't get one against the Falcons, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, there's 
maybe it, you, you still lose that Dallas game, whatever, but you're looking at a, you know, a two and one division record, a three and O division record, as opposed to an O and three, that's the big, to me, that's obviously the biggest difference of, of a lot of different things here, but you look at it again, five and four. I like that you pointed out that they are more consistent in a lot of other factors because, you know, there still is a lot of, game to game inconsistency and that clip that we've posted about Ryan Fitzpatrick when I asked him and Andrew Whitworth a week or so ago about this team and you know Fitzpatrick kind of said at the end with a with a smile it's just kind of a week to week proposition with this team look at the wildly disparity of scores in a matter of less than a calendar week between this team right granted you have one on the road you have one at, at home my thing, my I, I, I kind of thought about this this week, and I kind of mentioned it on the postgame show, John, and I wonder if, if you think this holds water. I had mentioned that I think part of the reason why the Bengals laid a bit of a stinker against the Browns was the fact that the Jamar Chase injury not only hit that week, but it hit kind of middle of that week. I mean, they knew about it. Uh, they were kind of working through it, but he played that Falcons game and played through it and had an excellent game. And all of a sudden by week's end, it's like, he's not playing. He might go on IR. They probably had early in the week, a semblance of a game plan in place wherein he was part of it. And then they had to scramble and change that up. I don't know. I mean, obviously they've still got talent. They've still got their quarterback, et cetera. I don't know how much that plays into it, but I know I don't want to make excuses for him, but I would think that that last minute kind of scramble to change the offensive game plan probably played a bit into the struggles that we saw Monday night, as opposed to, okay, now we've had all these days to kind of adjust things without Jamar chase. Yes. Potentially a lesser opponent and we're at home against Carolina, but I, I, I have to think that has to play some part in what we saw against Cleveland. Right. And you look at that loss, it's it's obviously the biggest loss in terms of score differential, but they were just the most outmatched in that game compared to all the other ones. And I think there is some weight to them having chased the previous week, them knowing that something was up, but not sure that it was going to be so bad that they had to sit him out for a, a month's time. So I think there is some weight to that. And also, Maybe it was a little bit of a preparational thing in terms of the run game where you know they didn't have to necessarily lean on it against the Falcons because they were just having this all-time passing day against that team and they're going up against the Browns defense that they have respect for, but they weren't doing so hot at the time. Like They were running into a lot of issues specifically in the run game, so they didn't think that they had to lean on it as much until the later part of the week, which is where they ran into some issues. But the Browns have shown to be a thorn of the Bengals' side for a multitude of reasons, and a lot of it has to do with matchups. So you have that loss. You have the Ravens loss when they were finding themselves a little bit before that against the Jets and the Dolphins, who, by the way, both those wins look fantastic right now because they the do. East yeah. is a juggernaut. Yeah. And the Ravens just changed their defensive identity, much like the Steelers did uh, the month prior. And they got in Burroughs' face and they couldn't find ways, ways to stretch the field. For me, it comes back to that Steelers game and how that was just the worst timing to face a Steelers defense that it looked really good at the time and looked like it was going to be that same type of Steelers defense throughout the season. And we've obviously seen how it's kind of fallen apart ever since then. And the TJ Watt injury definitely plays a factor into that, but you had an offensive line that this is a whole nother thing entirely. We definitely underestimated how long it was going to take for this line to gel because 
not only you had Leo Collins not practicing for a lot, you had Alex Kappa missing a lot of practice time too. You had a left guard situation that was completely fluid up until the beginning of September. You had basically no continuity with that offensive line. They clearly needed it before they were going up against a really talented Steelers defensive line. And they still lost just because they had a backup long snapper in there and you had just a miscue in protection for that extra point. You would have had a Jamar Chase walk-off touchdown. You would have started the season one to know who knows where your season outlook kind of goes from there and how much better they would be right now, maybe at six and three instead of five and four. So those three divisional losses, different things happened in each one of them. A lot of it was bad timing. A lot of it was injuries, but now they have three more division games left in their way. And I think they're better equipped to handle each, each one of them. I do as well. And I think now that you've seen it and I, I mean, I maybe we weren't the only ones to kind of call it, but we kind of said when the Bengals were facing the Steelers a second time this year, there's a very strong possibility that they would not be seeing the same quarterback that they saw in week one. And that's likely going to be the case here coming out of the bye. And it will not be on Sunday night football. That game has been flexed out of Sunday night football. And I think it is not so much in part of what happened with the Bengals, although their Halloween performance didn't help things on primetime, but I don't think it's so much that. I think it's more the Steelers' two and six record currently right now, and uh, so that that got flexed out of there. But a game that the Bengals kind of need to have in order to get that division record scale tipped back in their balance. And as you mentioned, the AFC East now is kind of starting to get look really strong, including the Patriots, who the Bengals have on the docket. Um, so you know they've they've got some tougher games coming up here on the back half but they are getting healthier. And I think that's a big thing. Now, one of the things that uh, real quick, before I get into my next point, I, I, we talked about things that may have affected them with Cleveland. Do you, do you have anything to say about the, the Foxy uh, Foxy's comment here in YouTube channel about, do you guys think that some of the, the, the finding out about Adam Zimmer, uh, which is terrible, terrible news, his, his passing, Shortly before that game, obviously former Bengals assistant and uh, former Vikings assistant, son of uh, Mike Zimmer. There is is. Do you think that played into anything there? I don't. I, I can't say with any certainty, but maybe you would have an opinion on that more more so than I. Yeah, I think we didn't find out about that until the night after the game. So who knows when they found out? If they found out before the game, we didn't really know a, a bunch about what. Zimmer was doing with the Bengals in general. We know that he was, I think, announced as an assistant early in training camp, but I think it was Ben Baby who said, or at least I learned from it first through him, that he was working remotely. So I don't think he was ever really present with the team. And who knows how much communication he would have had with the players in that regard. Maybe he was just communicating with the coaches. I don't really know that whole dynamic. And I don't really know if he was ever present with the team outside of maybe some. I think he did appear at OTAs earlier that season, and maybe that was their lone exposure to him. But yeah, that was very tragic to hear. Just not only a young man at 38 passing away, but in that family as well. Like we we all remember 2009 when when Mike's wife yeah. Nikki passed away in the middle of the season, and the toll that that took on the team, and obviously Mike himself. So I mean, just another just awful tragedy to befall on that family. And yeah, I, I guess. Because he was working remotely, we don't know the whole dynamic with that, but it was definitely wasn't ideal in any way, yeah. shape, or form. Yeah, and uh, definitely condolences to the Zimmer family, belated condolences. Um, I, I want to talk about uh, 
some statistical areas in which, and mostly individual, we talked kind of about the record and how the Bengals are, you know, pretty much on pace aside from their divisional standings to where they were last year. Um, Some people are saying, you know, you mentioned earlier, John, that there was kind of a talking point. I, I saw a little bit of it on Twitter where, you know, man, people are saying Tua gets propped up and now look at Burrow getting propped up by this run game all of a sudden, which is like, okay, well, one week where Mixon has an absolutely historic day and now, now the narrative changes, but let's just kind of quell some of that here based on my numbers, rough numbers that I kind of came up with so far this uh, last year compared to this year in terms of touchdowns, interceptions and sacks, on Joe Burrow, 20 touchdowns, 11 interceptions, and 25 sacks to this point, I believe, last year going into the bye. This year, 18 touchdowns, 6 interceptions, and 30 sacks on Joe Burrow this year. So the sack numbers are up by 5. The interception numbers are down by 5, which is, you know, to me, a little bit ironic. Usually the sack numbers you would think would correlate to more turnovers and increase in interceptions, um, two less touchdowns, but I think you would take the two less touchdowns and five less interceptions any day of the week. And to your point, John, you said that Burrow was working on getting, you know, taking what defenses gave him as well as making sure to not make the same mistake twice and kind of ascending into that veteran type of area or, uh, you know, kind of, I don't know what you would call it, but kind of veteran element or veteran status of his career. Um, And so that I think the lessening of the interceptions definitely shows it despite an uptick in sacks, which we can also talk about and parlay that into offensive line performance as well. Yeah. And the total sack numbers I think are inflated just from those first two weeks when uh, I think Paul Daner Jr. Excuse me. I think Paul Daner Jr. Was talking this week about, the whole surgery, him coming back, it was, at least from what he heard inside the building, a little overblown, which I don't know if I fully believe and buy. Like, he clearly was very sick and not feeling himself after the first two weeks after the surgery. It's a major surgery that takes a toll, not only just on regular people, but professional athletes, too. So I, I don't necessarily believe he was at 100% in week one, and it took him at least two games to really start feeling like himself and moving like himself. And I feel like that played into the 13 sacks that he took in those first two weeks, obviously with the offensive line, specifically Lael Collins and Cordo Volson kind of struggling out of the gate. It, it didn't help necessarily. So the 13 sacks in the first two weeks has definitely led to now what 30, 31 sacks in the first nine weeks. But compared to last year, when you didn't have a lot of confidence that that offensive line and Burrow was improving behind that offense or just that offensive line wasn't improving. Now entering week 11, week 10 of this year, that offensive line in its current form is definitely stabilized and it's coming together and it's being more consistent now. Good good pass rushers are going to take advantage of Jonah Williams and Leo Collins because they're really good pass rushers, and that's just the reality that you live with in the NFL. But I think looking at 30 sacks to 25 sacks last year is not just, oh, the offensive line is, is the same and it's Burrow is still taking too many sacks like I think comparing this part of the season to the beginning of the season, there's a lot of context and nuance there. And also just with Burrow in general, the first two weeks were rough in terms of just his overall efficiency, four interceptions out of the gate. 
is not ideal, but his turnover-worthy plays is about the same as it was this time last year. He hasn't made as many explosive plays down the field because those first four weeks were pretty rough in that regard, but he definitely seems like he's trending back up. The other talking point um, is of Evan McPherson because the last two weeks he's missed two field goals. I believe they were both from 47 yards out. Definitely not gimmies, but ones that he has made with regularity in his short career. Uh, and then an, a missed extra point last week. And then, of course, the the missed point, extra point heard around the world with the Clark Harris injury in week one. So a lot of people are worried about McPherson, where he's at. Oh, man, these recent misses and where he's where he is as compared to last year, et cetera. I did a little compiling of numbers, and I, I think I'm right. I, I'm happy to have someone double-check my math. But last year, at this point, I had McPherson at 11 of 14 on field goal attempts, which was 79%, and perfect on extra points, 27 of 27. This year, he's 12 of 15 on field goals, which is 80%, and 23 of 25 on extra points, those two I mentioned. Um, so... To me, I think a lot of people that are so concerned about Evan McPherson, again, when we look at things, you take a deeper dive instead of knee-jerk reactioning over the last week, two weeks, et cetera. We're looking at some things that are still on pace with what the team did last year at some important positions. And in one, again, I know, I know we look at offensive line. I know we look at Joe Burrow and all the wide receivers, but the kicking game was absolutely huge to the team's success last year, particularly in the postseason. And here we are, very similar numbers by Evan McPherson, despite two misses, three misses, if you count the extra point the past two weeks. So, first of all, um, I, th I think so. I did a post about this comparing his stats last year at this time to this year this time. Is that he's only made 11 this year, not 12, 11 of the 15, okay. but everything else was completely right. So it, it is eerily similar compared to how he started. Let's call it 11 and a half. Let's split sure, it down 11 the and a half, he's made 11 and a half. <laughs> And two of them last year, I believe, were game winners. One against the Vikings, his mm -hmm. first game out of the gate, and against the Jaguars. So despite that freak game against the Packers where he missed at least two, like people weren't necessarily worried about him out of the gate. And then as the season progressed and the games mattered a little bit more, that's when he really ascended into this now national figure for a 22, 23-year-old kicker, right? He was on fire to end the season, and like you mentioned, 14 for 14, the playoffs has never been done before. Even Adam Vinatieri missed one of his 15 kicks when he made 14 back in 2007, I want to believe, in, that, in those playoffs. So I think it's the expectations arose to a new level to begin this year because of how he ended last year. And that's why him coming out of the gate, much like he did as a rookie, is a little bit underwhelming just because we've seen what he did to end the season. But you're right, like... Every player at any position is is susceptible to going through these highs and lows. Kickers especially. Like, there's no real science as to what goes into these guys' minds and why they end up struggling for certain stretches. But for me, it's almost like he hasn't kicked enough in recent weeks. Like, he's missed his last two, but those last two have come from a span of three weeks. Like, he didn't kick a field goal against the Falcons. He wasn't busy against the Browns, and he missed his his lone, I think, field goal attempt and extra point against the Browns. And then he missed a field goal that didn't really matter in this game. But Way because, late in it. Yeah, because he's missed, I guess, his last three total kicks, we're now talking about his Evan McPherson on the path of being broken. When to me, it's like he's never 
gone through a three-game stretch where he's kicked this uh, little amount of field goals. And also, like he's made 12 of his last 13 extra points, so he's still getting work between the 30 and 39-yard range. So it's not like he's doing absolute... It's not like he's missing everything, necessarily. Like he's still making most of his extra points at a higher clip than his career rate is. So I'm not ready to you know, press the panic button on Nevin McPherson. If he kicks a little bit more, like I'm sure he'll get back up in, in, again because like the talent and the composure is still all the way there. And that's why they still have trust in him. So to kind of, you know, it, special teams, we'll talk more about maybe what's ahead with punter because that's now a, a topic of, of conversation. And then we've got some other things as we transition in, in a minute to what may be ahead for the buy with the Cincinnati Bengals, but let's kind of close in terms of what we've seen so far from the defense, because John, I think you said it best as a microcosm of the season, talking about how they performed against the Panthers, wherein you said the back seven played very, very well in that game against Carolina. And I feel like that's largely been the case this year because the Bengals just haven't had the pass rush this year, um, whether you want to really directly point to, you know, Larry Ogunjobi teams kind of really keying in on Trey Hendrickson. Um, you know, I think we're still getting some really good performances as an overall edge defender from Sam Hubbard. Um, but, you know, you're looking at it. I, I know sacks are an overblown stat a lot of, a lot of times, but they are ranked uh, in a tie for those Carolina Panthers. They just played for 28th in the league in, in sacks against the quarterback. Um, now I think, you know, Hendrickson is, is racking up more pressures. He's one of the tops in that regard. So you like that again, Hubbard doing some things. Osai has flashed here and there, but you know, you may miss the Larry Ogunjobi effect from last year. DJ reader was actually showing quite a, quite a nice pass rush ability before he went down this year. Um, so I, I think overall what we've seen so far, the defense has done a, a really, really good job of keeping this team, especially early in the season when the offense was struggling, really keeping them in games and keeping them manageable where they could have won a lot of those games, particularly the, the three that were, you know, last second field goals losses. Um, but the pass rush, uh, has, has been a bit of a concern. Yeah. And going into the season, I think it was Joseph Asai being pegged as like, this guy has to be your th- at least your third best pass rusher this year. And his usage and general role has been of intrigue because he's mainly been like a nickel defensive tackle on third downs. Like that's been his role because they don't want to take either Hendrickson or Hubbard off the field in those situations. And he's made some splash plays here and there, but still 56.1 pass rushing grade per PFF, 10.8% win rate. Trey Hendrickson is being Trey Hendrickson, 89.5 pass rushing grade with a 20% win rate. Other than that, you're getting not nothing, but kind of nothing. I know Sam Hubbard kind of started the year a little bit hot as a pass rusher, but a 60.2 pass rushing grade is pretty much in line with what he's always been in his career. It does seem like the the good pass rushes that are turning into sacks are not necessarily a product of winning as a pass rush, but that back seven giving them time to kind of mush the pocket and then the quarterback is panicking and then they're winning, finishing after four or five seconds of playtime. I, th- I think for me right now, like the injury to DJ Reader was obviously huge. And the fact that he was producing quickly as a pass rusher was such a welcome surprise that it negated the fact that 
BJ Hill's fine, but they don't really have that spark at three technique as a pass rusher. Like it's it's not necessarily been Joseph aside because even even when he's made some plays, he's only out there for about twenty snaps a game or so. Like he he's not out there enough to provide that consistent spark. BJ Hill is the starter. He's being paid as a three technique now, and he's just not really winning at the clip that they need. And the guys behind him, Zach Carter, Josh Tupa, when he played. Um, J2 Faley has, has been nice, but he's mainly been a run defender, and the same can be said for Zach Carter. They didn't really had that juice inside, and it was not really great that they were leaning on their 340-pound nose tackle to provide that. So they're not getting a lot of push in the middle, and it's putting more stress on Hendrickson and Hubbard to win early because if there's nothing in the middle to kind of pressure it's... a quarterback, that he can just step up, and then those edges are just they're not rendered useless, but they're rendered harder to actually penetrate the pocket. So they need someone else to really step up. They need either Hill to play a little bit better or they just need Reader to come back 100%. Uh, nice segue here from Bruce Gaines. It says, mock my words, but I think he meant mark my words. Watt, meaning TJ Watt, will be playing after the bye, uh, potentially against the Bengals there. So we will see. Thank you for the super chat there, Bruce. That'll go to the Pollock Family Foundation. But let's talk a little bit after the bye and as the Bengals go to the last half of their season here, they've got a tough stretch of games. Let's start kind of with this. Um, do you think the Bengals make some free agency moves to help bolster, whether it's at corner, whether it's at, um, you know, I, we, someone asked linebacker defensive line, that sort of thing. We talked about the, the pass rush issues there. Um, so do you see the Bengals maybe getting some free agency defensive help, and or, you know, how do you see things going for a guy like Cam Taylor Britt, who's going to be staring at a big, a bigger role going forward with Wuzier on IR? Is that picture photoshopped? I don't know. <laughs> um, yeah. So Taylor Britt, what this he's now got three games, two starts under his belt. And I feel like he played more consistent and more in tune with the rest of the unit. Uh, against the Panthers but his progression I think is obviously the most important just because of the role that he's filling in and cornerback seems to be that spot where they need the most external help you're now hoping that we're not hoping Mike Hilton's going to play against the Steelers he had surgery on his I believe right pinky fractured in three different places and tore like some type of ligament and required Oof. surgery it said it's he said it was like the worst pain that he's felt in a long time for any injury and that's why he didn't want to play through it against the Panthers. But I think he just needs another week. And this is what he said. Like, he'll be back against the Steelers. And the fact that it, it is the Steelers. He's not missing that game, yeah, dude. He, he is not missing that yeah, game. All the motivation that he needs. So he'll be back. But then you have Trey Flowers dealing with a hamstring injury. We don't really know the timetable for him. Dax Hill has a shoulder injury. Like, it did not look good at all. It looked almost separated when he landed on it in, mm-hmm. late in the game against the Panthers. That's cornerback depth, even if he isn't a natural cornerback. It is definitely the, the position where they they need the most bodies. But if they haven't made a move now or yet to add a guy from the outside, even a Sidney Jones, who I believe went to the Las Vegas Raiders, I don't think it's going to happen. I think they like Alan George. He was elevated off the practice squad this week and mm-hmm. played 20 solid snaps, albeit, again, in garbage time. But he looked like he was fine, and I think that is... a a guy that you'll probably see on the field again if injuries continue to occur. So if it hasn't happened by now, I don't think it will. But typically when I don't think a move is happening for the Bengals, that's when they end up surprising me. Yeah, and this would be the time, right? I mean, through the bye week, get someone acclimated a little bit. 
instead of bringing them in midweek and, you know, all of a sudden, Hey, you know, you may be suiting up here. So this, this around, you know, as we sit here Wednesday, halfway through this week here, you know, this would be the time potentially late this week, um, maybe early next, obviously it's all ideal for the team too, because on a shorter term contract like that, you know, you can, you know, you don't have to fiddle with the guaranteed money and all that kind of stuff based as much as you would bringing someone in it at the beginning of the season or during training camp or what have you. So um, yeah, big, big couple of weeks here for Cam Taylor Britt. I thought just last week, I thought both he and Dax were real close on a couple of plays here. They, but they, you know, let up touchdowns, but the coverage was there. It just were, you know, two pretty good plays and or throws by Baker Mayfield that allowed the touchdowns there. Um, So, yeah, I mean, that's, uh, that's something to, to keep in mind. And I think, I think this is this back half of the stretch, you know, the Bengals, as you mentioned, seem to be pretty confident in who they have on the roster and these young guys they've drafted to come in and step into these roles. Joseph Osai being one, uh, Cam Taylor Britt being another to potentially remedy some of these issues uh, that we've seen from the defense going forward. But overall, the defense has provided, you know, some pretty solid performances. Let's talk special teams, though. Matthew Grundy asked the question earlier about Drew Chrisman. Is it is his time coming up in Cincinnati? We know that he was booming some big kicks in practice, uh, or excuse me, pregame uh, the other day. And Huber uh, has, uh, we love Kevin Huber, but it has not been his best season so far. So um, might it be a time uh, that we start seeing a punting change this week? We know Darren Simmons likes his guys, so it would be a difficult move for him, especially after losing Clark Harris already this year. Right. I think the going back to the preseason when this battle was decided, like the decision-making process here is important because there wasn't a ton of separation between Chrisman and Huber in the preseason. I think Chrisman bested him in yards per punt, net yards per punt, but Huber had him beat in overall hang time and maybe direction, which benefited the the coverage team, which is also important. Obviously, Darren Simmons cares about that. And when it came down to it, like the battle was so close that he just went with the guy that he's been with for the past 13, 14 years, knowing that Chrisman was likely going to be... Uh, able to clear waivers and they were going to get him back on the practice squad but then you have your long snapper out for the year in week one so you have a rookie long snapper in there who mainly worked I believe in the offseason with Chrisman in that battery but they did you know kind of rotate guys in and out in those groups so it wasn't like he had no experience with Huber but uh, Cal Adamitis came in this season and he worked as the backup long snapper just like Chrisman was the backup holder and puncher so there is chemistry there already in that specific instance and now, going back to the trust thing, like if Simmons had more trust in Huber entering the season, you have to think after nine games, nine very underwhelming games from this guy, like that trust is basically gone at this point. Like there's nothing that Simmons can necessarily fall back on aside from just seeing how he's been in practice. And I believe it was Huber who said, you know, he's been good off the practice tee, but he hasn't really translated that to the first tee, which is... I think what a lot of people can relate to if they play golf here and there. So, but this is the NFL punter, right? You don't want him just being good in practice and being crap on the field, especially when you had some of these games when he was really needed in some of these close games to give them, to give the defense good field position and he hasn't really pulled through. So the fact that Huber has not really backed up the trust that he was given from Darren Simmons, it really leaves him 
basically no other option. If, if Chrisman is healthy and he's doing well in practice, and like you said, I think for the past couple of weeks now, at least in home games, he's been in uniform and he's been taking punting reps before the game just to be, I guess, familiar and comfortable in that environment because he hasn't really punted in game aside from just this preseason. Remember, he was injured last year, so yep. he didn't play the preseason, preseason at all. So his exposure is mainly in practice situations. So they want him to be more accustomed to punting in the stadium and in the in that environment. And I think that's no coincidence that they were doing that as Huber has been in the slump. And this was a whole thing in general just because we saw this the beginning of this downward decline in Huber last year. And that's why we were debating that they should even draft a punter this year, if they should give Chrisman a real chance, or if this should be even a battle at all. Like, is Kevin Huber going to bring enough in the offseason to retake his job? And apparently he did, but as we've seen in the first nine games, like, it's the continuation of what we saw in 2021. Yeah, Emperor Starscream says Huber's average 47 yards first three games. Yeah, but that average has dropped significantly these past few. And as the weather continues to get colder, poorer, and we know that all of these, uh, you know, you've only got one more AFC North game on the road, but between Cincinnati and, you know, the road game at Pittsburgh, and then you've got others, um, you know, that are going to have some cold weather there. Those That, that average is going to keep shrinking potentially unless he fixes it. And here's the thing, you know, if the average was going down these last few weeks and he was pinning the opponent often inside the 20, then we wouldn't really be having this conversation. Right. I mean, that's just not happening. So I I think that's where this is my issue with it. If Chrisman earns the job and he is the better option, the safer option for the team right now, so be it. I, I just, as I mentioned earlier, I worry about the element of losing your long snapper already. You know, you've got, we talked about a little bit of the recent struggles for, for McPherson, whether they're warranted or not in terms of being worried. And then now you're talking about replacing your punter, who is also, oh, by the way, the holder um, for McPherson on his field goal attempts. D- do you really want to roll that dice there? Um, so you got to kind of pick your poison, and Connor Johnson has the best uh, remedy for everything. No more punting. No more punting. That's down with his, that. Uh, <laughs> that's that's what it's about. All right, let's talk a little offense, and then we will maybe get to some trivia and get on out of here. Um, and really, my, I, I've got two questions for you, and I'll start with this guy. We're going to show on the screen here with Chase, not knowing particularly when we're coming, when he's coming back quite yet. We think sooner rather than later, based on him not being on IR. Still. Uh, a little bit of uh, some question marks there, and you want to be careful so there's not long-term issues there. Um, and then the Bengals kind of playing a little bit more, like you said, taking what's given to them, using some ancillary weapons here and there. This guy's been a nice piece for him, Hayden Hurst. Uh, do you see him being even more uh, integrated into the offense going forward and uh, used as a bit more of a security blanket for Joe Burrow, or is it going to be more of the same in terms of looks targets to Hayden Hurst based on all the weapons in the offense? Yeah, I think it's, it's fairly interesting how despite chase being injured for now two games and, you know, varying levels of, of production from some of these receivers. Like I think, all three receivers, Hurst and Mixon, are on pace for like 75 receptions this year and a certain amount of yards, which means that the ball is just being distributed very evenly throughout this offense. And Hayden Hurst adapting really quickly has been kind of a part of that. I don't know if the numbers necessarily back this up, but it does seem like he's being used more down down the field in the past couple of games. There was 
One example against Cleveland really late in the game where he was used at the seams. Even with Brandon Allen at quarterback, I think he was targeted downfield like a back shoulder pass. So I think having him more involved in the vertical game is, is obviously key, especially when you don't have Chase there to stretch the field. And that makes it harder, obviously, as well. But yeah, I think his role is firmly established in this offense. And it's a very valuable one. Like whenever he gets the ball, we've talked about this multiple times this year. He's a yak machine. He runs as hard as any tight end I've ever seen in the NFL. And that's saying <laughs> something. And he just, I don't know, there's, there's just a passion to him that I think they, they want him to get involved because they know that he'll make the most out of every target that he gets. The targets the last three weeks, um, eight against Atlanta where he had six receptions for 48 yards, and then he was 100% on catches based on targets the past two weeks, four against Cleveland for 42 and five against Carolina for 35. So really his highest volumes of targets have been against Pittsburgh, against Dallas, against Baltimore, and against Atlanta. Um, now Cincinnati is what one and three in those games. So I don't know if you want to, you know, correlation is not causation, which is one of my least favorite phrases, but it does ring true sometimes. So, um, you know, you can take that for what you will, but you know, again, the t- he's getting a lot of catches uh, based on the targets. He's getting these past couple of weeks, still only nine the past couple, but I, again, I still think he's going to be hovering around that six targets per, per game average, I I don't expect a high uptick regardless personally, but I think you're going to see about five to six targets per game for him. And, you know, if one of those comes into the red zone, given his size, and like you said, the yak ability, I'll take it. Right. Like the, the whole chase timeline is just the biggest variable here. And it was really interesting hearing, I think Joe Burrow said right after the game that, you know, he was feeling pretty good about, him returning sooner rather than later. And then Zach Taylor responded, I think a day later, like, yeah, there's just no real update on him. So it's, it's, it seems like obviously this bye week he's out the next game against the Steelers. I, I don't expect him to be there. It's like that Titans game is circled now as like, that looks like the earliest possible return for him into the offense. And even when that happens, who knows how he's going to feel like how, you know, close to hundred percent, is he going to be in that game? And it just it just changes so many things. Like we saw what this offense was even with Chase in week one against the Steelers. Now there's a ton of variables with that. But yeah, like his return just means so much for this offense. And it really does impact the overall outlook people should have with it. Let's just ask one more question of the offense in terms of going forward. And then we'll start to uh, wrap things up here, John. What what do you think is going to be showcased in the run game based on what we've seen uh, that this, not only this year, but last week, um, are, are we going to see, are we going to see more attempts at balance? Are we going to see more, um, uh, you know, I know last, last week was kind of like, Hey, we're going to throw everything at you. And, and most of it seemed to work. Um, but are you, are you going to see, do you think we're going to see more of that RPO stuff that had some effectiveness, albeit unlimited carries kind of towards the early middle part of this season, or do you think that they're going to try and do what they did last week, thinking they made some some progress and try more outside runs, try more, you know, counters, misdirections, et cetera? Well, I think they recognize when, like, there are really good pass rushers on the other side of the ball. Like, to an extent, this offensive line is still, like, their overall production is based off of the quality of, of opponent, right? And they really benefited from both Brian Burns and Derek Brown being out for most of this game. Like, that's 
That's the two biggest pieces of that Panthers defensive line. And when Burns was in the game, like he was giving Jonah Williams some trouble from time to time. Steelers and the Titans, like both of their defensive lines at full strength, and we should expect TJ Watt to come back for that Bengals game. Like they're going to be, they're going to be problems for certain members of the Bengals offensive line, which is why I, w- I would expect them to want to lean on the run game like they did in this game against a good Panthers defensive line when fully healthy. So having that performance, I think, gives them confidence that they don't have to just stick to one type of scheme. They don't have to stick to one set of concepts in the run game. They can deploy multiple throughout the game to keep the defense on its toes and slow down the pass rush at the same time and marry that with a quick passing game for one more week while Jamar Chase is still out and try to stretch the field as much as you can with both with both Boyd and Higgins. I think the fact that they found some versatility and diversity in the run game should give them confidence as an overall unit to potentially slow down both of those pass rushes because that's going to be ultimately the key in the game. The, defensively, the Bengals should have no issue holding both teams to under 20 points. It's, it's just a matter of the, can the offense create explosive plays and sustain drives, and I think for them that means having – not as sufficient of a run game. Like that's that's an anomaly. You're not going to get four touchdowns and no. average seven yards to carry with Joe no. Mixon every single week. But yeah. having just a moderate level of consistency and sustainability with doing multiple things so defenses can't key on you, I think that's the key. Yeah, and I do think they're going to keep trying those uh you know, wide receiver sweeps and stuff like that occasionally as well to try and, you know, gain some positive yardage there. The the risk associated with that sometimes is a bit higher because there are, is a, a chance for losses there. But, um, you know, if it, it that right side starting to gain some ground with Kappa and Collins, they're starting to play, play yeah. better and do some different things in the run game. So, um, you know, I would expect they may lean on that side there. But overall... Um, uh, you got a, a, a mid-season grade for the for the Bengals right now, John. Based on what you've seen um, so far, I'm going to give them I'm going to give them a B, and okay. uh, it seems more generous compared to the record. But I think they are truly a six and three team right now. Like I think the Cowboys was a, a legit loss. I think the Ravens I played them, and obviously the Browns I played them. Um, I, I think if all things are equal, they're six and three, which more reflects the the B grade. But they are just a a pretty solid team. I think compared to the 31 other teams, only the Eagles, Bills, Chiefs, and maybe the Dolphins are clearly ahead of them in terms of everything. Like they're clearly the third or fourth best team in this conference, even though they're the on Dolphins. the outside looking in. Exactly, right? Like, like they, they beat the Dolphins. They show that they are they can score on that defense if they need to. So all things considered, they're a top four team in this conference, even though they're outside of the playoff picture looking in. And it doesn't help that they have probably the toughest schedule remaining out of any team in the NFL. But right now, I think they're a solid team that whose record is a little bit lower than what it should be. Yeah, I'd go B minus just because uh, number one, you know, I think some of those losses, I feel like you just you should have had those early in the season, and that that sticks in my craw. But I think also just in general, I think some people need to again realize where your expectations are and what we pointed out earlier in terms of this team is not far off in a lot of key areas based on what they were last year and they got hot at the right time they made the right changes out of the bye even if it if it's for a couple of games and then they like I said they got hot at the right time and hopefully that's what happens here they've got a tough back half of the schedule we'll see what happens but that's been kind of our assessment of the Bengals where they've been what happened against the Panthers and what we foresee happening after the buy, this is the Orange and Black Insider Bengals podcast. We'll do some quick trivia and get out of here. John, do you want to go this week or do you want to just pick one for the masses given the time 
right now. Yeah, I think I think the masses need to be need to be first here. Okay. All right. Let's let's review the chapters here. Origins in history, numbers game, calling the signals between the tackles, catching the ball, trench warfare, no air zone, Super Bowl shuffle, shining the busts, draft day, let's make a deal, writing the record book. What is shining the bus? Uh, I I am afraid I haven't I haven't looked closely at it, but my guess is maybe draft busts and or um, Hall of Fame statue busts. I think it's probably a bit of both. So it looks like Hall of Fame, Hall of Fame, Hall of Fame questions. Um, and by the way, a lot of those are centering around number seventy eight. Good friend of the show, Anthony Munoz. Um, so do you want to go with that? Yeah, why not? Okay. Um, Hmm. let's go. And by the way, we'll take the first correct answer for the live listeners here. And if you want to give us your email, uh, shoot us an email or contact us with your address. Do not put it in the, in the live chat. Um, (laughs) We'll we'll try and send you just a little something, something fun here. Okay. In which city did Terrell Owens make his hall of fame acceptance speech after spurning the official ceremony in Canton? And these are multiple choices. What city did Terrell Owens make his Hall of Fame acceptance speech after spurning the official ceremony in Canton? By the way, he did that because he was not a first ballot Hall of Famer in which he thought he deserved to be. So A, Cleveland, Ohio, B, San Francisco, California, C, Chattanooga, Tennessee, D, Alexander City, Alabama. Where did Terrell Owens make his Hall of Fame acceptance speech after spurning the official ceremony in Canton? A, Cleveland, B, San Francisco, C, Chattanooga, D, Alexander City. Bengals Hall of Fame receiver, Terrell Owens. Uh, And I think we've got, oh, yeah, first right answer right off the bat, Matthew Grundy, Tennessee, Chattanooga. That's where he went to college. So, yes, that uh, is the correct answer. I tried to go a little different because most of those questions were about Anthony Munoz wanted to go with something else. So, uh, looks like Matthew Grundy was the first one in the live YouTube chat there, Tennessee, Chattanooga. Uh, so Matthew, hit us up at theobinsider at gmail.com with uh, somewhere to send a little something to you and or hit us up on Twitter and we'll get that to you. John, let's drop the mic and get out of here. What do you got? Well, first off, the University of Tennessee at Ch- Chattanooga. It sounds like Grundy is indeed a Chattanooga alum because I don't think anyone has ever put the in front of uh, Chattanooga, but <laughs> shout out Matthew. Good, Good job there. Um, my mic drop going to be something that we didn't address today, but uh, T. Higgins, uh, I believe, was in the neighborhood in northern Kentucky, and he ended up picking up the tab, a pretty sizable tab, for a birthday dinner at a northern Kentucky restaurant, and Chad Johnson's like, I effing love you, man, and I feel like you know, <laughs> it's, 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 a, it's a nice thing that, that deserves some headlines here. T. Higgins kind of morphing into Chad Johnson in all the right ways, being number 85, and he really played well against the Panthers, and... You know, he's really stepped up this year. So shout out to Teagans. Good job, man. How cool. That's I, I hadn't heard that. I've been a little disconnected today, so I hadn't really heard that one. So that's a, that's really neat. That is Chad is notorious, infamous, or famous for it, I guess. Infamous means something bad. So uh he is famous for that for sure. Um I you know, I don't have I don't have all that much. I'll just re reiterate um again some belated condolences to the to the Zimmer family. I, you know, I had meant to talk about that last week on the show. And we got to so many topics that 
Um, I, I'm embarrassed to say that it slipped my mind, but the, you know, the loss of Adam Zimmer and, you know, Mike Zimmer just losing two people extremely close to him and his family so young is something that is just really, really tragic. And, um, you know, obviously he was relieved of his duties with the Vikings recently as well. So just kind of a tumultuous time for that family. And I, I just, I feel for him. I've met Mike Zimmer and I know there's the guy who's the animated, you know, sailor mouthed guy on the sidelines and whatnot, but I met him a while ago back in 2013 and he couldn't have been a nicer guy. Uh, and you could tell his players loved him because they were, they loved him. I, I was there. I saw it. Um, and so, uh, you know, a good coach, and a well, well liked coach in in terms of Bengals circles. So, uh, just can't just can't say sorry enough for the loss because that's that's a tough one. Yeah, and you know Adam has been co- was coaching the league for a while. I believe it was close to fifteen years with multiple organizations, and every, it seemed like every organization uh, tweeted out like nothing but yeah. the greatest yeah. things to say about him for only being thirty eight years old. Man, it's tragic. Yeah. Well, didn't want to end it on a, on a sad note, but had to throw that out there and thank you everybody for tuning in live, whether that is through the Cincy jungle Facebook page, our YouTube channel, the orange and black insider. And again, get this show and your favorite shows on the Cincy jungle uh, podcast channel there on your favorite audio platform. We're on all the major ones. We will be back with more. We're not taking the week off. Uh, we don't really take weeks off here. So um, <laughs> sometimes we do, but we're going to be getting you a lot of different material and some fun stuff coming up for the second round of Steelers week. We may have to get Ike Taylor back, man. We got it. We got to get him. We got to get you and him. Wide receiver talk. Yeah. Yeah. We got to, we got to have that part two, but we'll see what happens. Take care, everybody. We will see you soon. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.